Welcome to the Grace Story Podcast, where inspiring stories are brought to life. This podcast is made possible by Grace College and Seminary, located on the shores of Winona Lake in the great state of Indiana. I'm your host, Dr. Drew Flam. This is the Grace Story Podcast. Today, our guest on the podcast is Dr. Kevin Roberts. Dr. Roberts is Professor of Behavioral Science here at Grace College, as well as Dean of the School of Behavioral Science. Today, we're gonna talk a lot about his work as a professor, a researcher, and a writer. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I could have read a much longer bio, but there was too much for me to be able to get into that introduction. All the things you've written and researched and your time here at Grace, it's quite amazing. So um, I wanna hear a little bit about your undergraduate days and, and how you got to an interest in behavioral science and then back to Grace College. Okay. Well, I was, uh, shortly after I got saved, I transferred to Grace. And so when I came to Grace, I was kind of a criminal justice and law focus. And I took a course in family systems from Tom Edgington. And and just seeing the complexity of human interactions and all the variables that influence our what motivates us and drives us as people really kind of made me switch to having a, a kind of a two-pronged focus. So then you um, graduated. Did you graduate then with I did. a law side and a behavioral well, a science criminal justice side, side and a, a psychology side? Okay. Yeah. And then uh, on to grad school right away? I I did. I did. Um, I, I went to um, Western Illinois University. Um, Grace did not have a master's program. Actually, at that time, they were talking about starting one. And what happened was that, that fall, unfortunately, I got meningitis. And I was hospitalized, ended up missing the entire first semester. Oh, wow. And so as a result, at that time, uh, Tom Edgington then called me and said, hey, we're starting this master's program. So I took classes from the spring, transferred them, and, and uh, eventually came back to Grace. Okay, so uh, you got a transfer to Grace thing going on. I did, undergraduate. I did. <laughs> you didn't get your PhD here, though. I know nope. I know that one. Nope. <laughs> um, so uh, was it soon after PhD that you returned to Grace, or how did you get back here to Grace as a professor? Well, I had been working in the area. Um, I was working uh, probably... 11 or 12 years full-time in the field. And while I was doing that, um, the last four or five years, I was in my doctoral program. And so I was working full-time, doing my doctoral program in Chicago on the weekends. And and so we were living down in um, on Grissom Air Force Base, actually. Oh, wow. And so well, while we were down there, uh, my wife was going to pharmacy school at Purdue. And so we were, uh, we just... I had been going back and forth between county offices working for Bowen Center. And while I was doing that, so I was commuting a lot up here, and I got near the end of my program, and Heather finished pharmacy school, and I was um, asked by Grace at that time to come and teach half-time. And so I did that for two years while I was working full-time <laughs> as a uh, during my internship and writing my dissertation. Uh, simultaneously. Oh, so, wow. A little and, bit. That was a busy time. And then after that, then then came on full-time. Then I came on full-time. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, tell me a, a little bit about uh, 
you know, what you've taught here at Grace and, and then, you know, you've, you've kind of moved up the ranks into uh, deanship and, and now starting new concentrations, majors. What's, what's the breadth of the program um, that you help oversee here at Grace? Okay, so I oversee the grad online program. Um, we just finished our week of residency, which was super fun. Like, I, I mean, I, they they were all in my building this that whole week, and it, you know, especially after last year and everything kind of being low key, it was so much fun to have these students all over the place in the building and <laughs> and, and loud and but they were having a blast. It was a great. So that yes. was a lot of that was a, they were here for their intensive, right? They were. They were. And you get a bunch of counseling students, they're gonna talk. And so <laughs> they're they're gonna be in all those social areas talking. And uh, so yeah, so we had hundred and ten, I think, that were on campus for the residency. And that was our largest residency. Yeah, I think it is. I think it uh, just barely beat out uh, previous years. That's we had awesome. a few that weren't able to make it, but it was a great week. Um, and so we had a good time. So I have that. And then I have the undergrad programs and where we have psychology, sociology, criminal justice and counseling. So, so and a host of concentrations under all and, of those. And we right? have 11 different concentrations <laughs> under some of those. If you want to emphasize, say, child and family counseling or industrial organizational psych or clinical integrative health. Um, we have disciplines like that. And then the um, Bethany Nesbitt, child life specialist. Yeah, I'd love for you to tell us just a little bit of, the, of that story um, of the uh, of the new concentration that was already in the works. And then, uh, of course, uh, many of uh, our listeners will know about the passing of one of our students, Bethany Nesbitt, last year, who was one of your students. Yeah. Um, and tell us a little bit just ab- about her and the development of this concentration? Well, it's, yeah, I'm going to try to do this as best I can and and not get emotional. But I'll just say we, um, for years, child life specialists is kind of a specialty. Most people won't know what that really is. But it's the, when you go and you work in a children's hospital with kids who have very serious illness. Um, they may have cancer or all kinds of illnesses that might be life-threatening or, or less, le- less threatening. And so child life specialists go in there and they work with the kids and the families. And they do hard work, mm. right? I mean, they're dealing with grief. They're dealing with loss. Um, you know, nothing like seeing someone lose their child and that kind of pain that they're experiencing. And so this was Bethany's heart. Mm. And... Bethany's heart for these kids was evident. And these courses are kind of an odd set of courses, right? And you have to have endorsements. And we didn't, we don't have endorsement yet. But um, one of the things about that is you had to have this group of classes. They're really hard to find. And so Bethany and I had worked together to do that. Wow. Um, the summer before she came back during COVID, um, <sighs> We did. We Google chatted. Uh, we did. We probably contacted each other five or six times, just doing face to face to try to work out this plan. We wanted to bring this in as one of the concentrations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Bethany was my advisee, and so we worked to identify how we would bring those courses in. And then, um, you know, unfortunately, in the fall when she arrived back. Um, she contracted COVID, so, and seemed to be doing well, and um, was 
felt really encouraged and it just was a, a sudden turn because I had spoken with her just a few days before we had chatted and so I had I said hey I've already had COVID I, you know I'll bring you anything yeah, you need yeah. like what do you and she's like I'm doing so much better so oh, it was just um such a sad moment I'm sorry for your loss as you know um uh both a student and a friend uh, that Bethany was to you. Um, and yet in such great pain, God has saw fit for this new concentration to be kind of birthed out of that in a sense. Um, and, and so now it's, it's more ready. And, and, and I'm sure that was even uh, more of an impetus to really, you know, get this thing off the ground and what a blessing that will be to so many other families going through yeah. tough times. I mean, her heart for kids was just, you just, you can't measure that. And to do and name this in her honor just seemed like the only option. That's, so I was glad her family was willing to do that, allow yeah, us to do yeah. that. Um, as, a, as a family that's been in some of those hospitals, uh, I, I can't imagine how beneficial that would be to have somebody to care for you along the way and, and be specialized in that you know, trauma uh, of a significant level when it has to do with your own kids. So that's, that's amazing. Um, Switching gears just a little bit, but, but still on the same page as some of your own research has to do with uh, taking the field of behavioral science in, into the medical field or into the hospital and, and not dissimilar, but, but in a different vein, Um, you've done quite a bit of research and I'd love for you to just give a little bit of background on, you know, how did you get interested in particular uh, with the research you do in hospitals and readmission and, and those type of things? And what are some of the specific studies that you've conducted uh, over time related to that? Give us, give us the, uh, give us the layman's explanation of what you've, <laughs> what you've been working on for years and years and years. Well, I think I, I was really passionate about. This when because I early on coming out of high school and in college, I worked in hospitals. I spent like six years in hospitals. Mm -hmm. And one of my jobs um, was monitoring cardiac rhythms on a telemetry wing. And so um, I would notify if there was a change in a heart rhythm to atrial fibrillation or, you know, something along those lines. And and so what was interesting was you got to see a lot of patients who kept coming back. Mm And it was the awareness that our system had real gaps, right? Real gaps. And these, you know, about one in three of the people who have a major cardiac event are going to be depressed. That's just a, a common and, – and to think that that doesn't influence their recovery, mm. their motivation to exercise, their motivation to change their lifestyle – it's just it doesn't make sense. Right. And we've had these large gaps. And so I became very passionate about integrated health and the need to not see these as two separate systems. Because when you have two separate systems, uh, a healthcare side and a mental health side, the gaps between them are where you find the patient. Yeah. And it hurts their quality of life. Their, their length of life. The World Health Organization has a, a one study that they quote that says that the person who has both, you know, a chronic illness 
and uh, a mental health illness will live 10 to 25 years less. Mm. So it becomes not just about improving the person's length of their life, but it's putting life back into those years. And so these chronic health conditions just cause people to lose out on much of their life. And so uh, I became very, very passionate about that. And interestingly for me anyway, um, we have about 50 years of research in our country on this. And we started in the 1960s, and we have it through to today. Okay. And the, we spent over $4 trillion a year on, on health care. And when you think about that, the research that we have, uh, both the Cong- Congressional Budget Office and beyond, show the studies are 10 to 40% in savings. And you think about that applied across our country, you know, we're talking billions, if not trillions, of dollars saved. So it's the, it's a benefit to the individual, of course, but but the whole system itself, from a financial cost standpoint, and it, um, it and it's it's typically a a percentage of the population who are these perpetual, you know, back in the hospital for various reasons. Right. Yeah. And well, I'll give you an example. Um, I remember this because I teach this. Right. It's uh, but. We have 12% of the population have five or more chronic health illnesses, five or more, hmm. okay? And, and that can happen to any of us, but w- the amount of money we spend is 41% on wow. that 12%. And if you have three or four more, that's another 26%. So two-thirds, over two-thirds of the amount of money we spend in healthcare is related to people with three or more chronic illnesses. And then the average physician's visit is eight to 10 minutes. And we and each chronic illness takes about five minutes to cover. Yeah. So, how in the world <laughs> are we going to handle this when most of these chronic illnesses bring in about one in three will come with a coexisting mental health diagnosis? And we're asking our doctors to do it. It's a possible job for them. Right. Right. We're asking them to do something that to be supermen and women. It's just I. It's beyond their. To be medical specialists and mental health specialists psychology, and, behavioral self and, and to yeah. be able to cover all those right. things. It's, yeah. it's quite an undertaking. So if I was to kind of, uh, and please correct me, I'm going to give a very um, layman's term example, but you know, when I go to the doctor uh, and I say I'm, I'm sick with X, Y, or Z, I mean, often they say, you know, how are you sleeping? How are you eating? Are you working out? And, and, you know, I usually say no to a couple of those at least. And they go, well, you should do that. You know, that, that'll probably help you feel better. And and it, it's kind of like that, but on a certainly a different scale. Somebody who's, you know, has chronic health uh, or heart issues and they're going back in the hospital all the time and the doctor's telling them that and they they hear it. But like th- there's a there's a barrier, right, to to be able to then do something about it. There's um, the, the mental illness side of it that they need more assistance with than just, hey, go eat, sleep, and work out more. Right. right. Um, and that's where you bring along the behavioral science, the the mental health aspect with the medical and say, okay, what are the barriers for someone to be able to actually do those things? I mean, it's it's not that they don't want to. They want to, but there's some barriers there that we need to work through. 
again, very layman's term, but am I in the right vein of kind of yeah, yeah, the this work is, you've done? This is where we've done. Um, we did um, probably about a two and a half. See year. what I did there, right? Vein. Right. Okay. I, nice to make, I just want to make sure you <laughs> caught that. Um. <laughs> so yeah, we uh, we did like a two and a half year study on people who would be considered treatment resistive um, diabetes. Okay. And so one of the things we did is we just, we would do an, an assessment. There's a psychological tool we would use. And we would pick up on what's going on with this person and, and really address their barriers. Now, it actually was fascinating for us because it, it gave this lit long list of things. And it measured for all your, your diagnosable things, the depressions, the anxieties. But it also picked up on things like sensitivity. Um, pain sensitivity, um, clinical, it's kind of like a fragility scale. Hmm. So in other words, if I, you go in to see your doctor and he tells you five things and you have a high score here, you probably didn't hear more than one. Ah. And so it really helped us to understand also, like, who can you give a lot of information to? Who can you not? And when? And one of the things that we found, um, well, first of all, the people came out of it at the other side of it, who were probably seen anywhere from three to 10 times, mm. we're, we dropped the A1C score. A1C score in our country, you want a score for um, in diabetes of below seven is a good score, okay. right? And is, if you go up to an eight, you're pretty much adding a 50% or more increase in chance of cardiovascular-related problems. Okay, wow. So our folks started at about an eight-six. And so they went down to 7.5, hmm. which you can't really measure that sometimes in dollars and cents, but it really does. It's it's a quality of life issue. Right. Right. And the control group went from 8. They went up. Wow. So the opposite direction. But the fascinating thing for me, one of the fascinating things besides knowing that that works is that one of the people, there was a group of people who fooled us in the study. Hmm. Like, and- because they were really good at saying, you know, Dr. Roberts, I know, I know you're right. I do need to change. I, I really do need to make these change. It was the people who had high cooperative scores. Ah. The people who were angry and defensive, who sometimes in healthcare they think they don't want them, they don't want to change, they were the easiest to change. Huh. The hard ones were the ones who were nice and had great social skills and knew how to tell you to leave them alone without <laughs> without doing it. They were just really nice people. So it was better to work with the with the person who said, "Yeah, I'm not going to do that." Yeah, and it was the, much the easier. Who's like, "Oh, absolutely." Yeah, yes, we, we yeah, gotcha. So we learned we needed to ask different questions I guess to the that people sense. that were I mean, cooperative. My kids are kind of that way, right? I mean, like they fool me sometimes with their, you know, fake cooperative. That makes sense. Interesting. Well, it didn't occur to me when I was first seeing them. <laughs> and it wasn't until we were partway through it. I was looking at the, you know, seeing some of the numbers and I'm like, wow, why are they all cooperative people who aren't getting better? So... Yeah. Fascinating. Well, okay, so we've kind of covered, um, you know, your your teaching role, your research role, but you have this also like interesting, you know, not just uh, writing behavioral science, mental health, you know, research stuff, but but commentaries. I mean, there, there's a uh, there's that side of you as well. And, and you and um, Dr. Ratza, I think, are working on something even now. But you your your most recent work was on 
Ecclesiastes, if I'm correct, right? So tell me a little bit about, you know, um, professor, researcher, um, may I say theologian Kevin Roberts, or at least I know you and Tibbs combined on that. So tell us a little bit about the Ecclesiastes study and, and what you were hoping to accomplish by bringing together, a, you know, a, a theologian and a, um, a behavioral science professor. Yeah, it's just, it's adding a different perspective, right? It's it's looking at this from lots of different ways and seeing what our research and our field says about this. Um, Probably the best example to me is if you ever read Ecclesiastes 2, it's when Solomon goes and lists all these things he does, right? He All these things he's tried that didn't work and then <laughs> they frustrated him, right? Everything under the sun, yep. <laughs> and he tried them all and at the end he's like, mm, right? Is it meaningless? And so he's he goes through this. You know, in psychology we have these terms like hedonic adaptation, and hedonic treadmill. And the hedonic adaptation says that you and I, we have a set point. We have a set point for where we're at for for his overall happiness. And you could get a windfall or you could get great news and you're gonna your mood may go up and your happiness goes up, but you're gonna go back down <laughs> to kind of your set point. And it doesn't really matter. These other things that you pursue, mm. as Solomon was saying, they're not going to bring you lasting happiness yeah, yeah. and joy. And then ultimately, what do we do? We start pursuing things like happiness or money or wealth is what he was saying. You know, as the kings in that that time would often have their resume of all the things they've accomplished, right? And he's laying them all out and saying, I've done more than everybody, and I, at first I thought maybe he this was a little arrogance or something, but <laughs> I realized what he was saying was, I've tried them all, and none of it, none of it brings that. Huh. And and that hedonic treadmill then we get on is we pursue these things, yep. material, wealth, fame, and they don't bring us satisfaction because you're on the treadmill. And the the real choice then becomes is how you're going to live your life in light of that. Hmm. So we were just trying – we were adding perspective to this um, – uh, just to to see where our research finds us, right? Hmm. And so there's a there's a lot of interesting stuff from my perspective, of course, um, just on the on our brain and our chemistry and how we're wired in the sense that we're wired so that we're not gonna keep getting that increase. Why did you uh, choose um, you know Ecclesiastes? Uh, you know, as the as the first first go ahead for you and Dr. Ratza to work together on a on a commentary from a different perspective. Yeah, I always found the book so fascinating. I mean, some people find it very depressing, and <laughs> and so I don't know. I guess in our field we're used to that, right? <laughs> like, we're, we're used Dealing to being in, in, typical, yeah. in the dark places and in the yeah, painful yeah. places, and. We often are living in those, what C.S. Lewis calls the law of undulation, right? We live in those peaks and valleys a lot of times with people. And, and so I found it interesting. So I took his class. And so I started asking him lots of questions. I don't know if I was annoying him or not. <laughs> but uh, Fine, we'll just write a book about it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it, it's been a lot of fun. And right now we're working on Proverbs. Yes. And, and I, s- 
That'll be so, that, and that goes right along with Ecclesiastes. Right? It I mean, does. We're yeah. staying in the wisdom literature. Um, I know he wants to do Job next, but I told Tom Edgington he can carry that one because <laughs> that's a that's a lot heavier. Um, but Proverbs, we've chosen like eleven topics, yeah. and wow. it, this is hard work for me because you know, if, like writing a chapter on human kindness, for example, or humility. The number of research studies out there on these, like try a Google search sometime. You're going to find like 1,700 right. articles. Yes. And so it's it's pretty exhaustive uh, research to go through. What I find fascinating hearing you express this is, you know, you're, you're going to literature that is that is not uh, necessarily starting with scripture, right? Oh, I mean, no. the, the, it's just looking at human behavior um, and making assessments. But but you uh, you see in there a thread oh, yeah. um, that lines up with what Scripture already said and has said, and and what God designed from the beginning of time. And 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 you're saying, hey, you know, hey world, all the stuff you're saying out here was also expressed, you know, previously uh, in oh, yeah. in the Bible. So true, so true. There's just so many threads, and it's it's neat to watch. It's it's just so cool to watch that research tie together in all those places. Yes, and say, eh, we kind of knew that, but uh, <clears throat> we learned it in a different way. That's so that's fascinating. So you know, you like right now, you I'm just looking at the topic of humility, and you see how instrumental humility is throughout um, Proverbs. You know, whether you're going to have a teachable spirit, you know, throughout Proverbs, he says, if and then. And I'm like, well, if you do this, if you're willing, then this is what happens. And those ifs and thens have a prerequisite with them. It's our humility. Mm. And I'm not sure there's a better thing, a more powerful concept and more essential concept than that. Mm. And bears out in research literature as well. On well, humility is connected to all kinds of things. In uh, as far as overall human health, um, your own self concept, your own self worth, because people who are humble don't tend to have um, as many problems because their perspective of themselves is more realistic. They're not trying to do bravado. They've given up on that. <laughs> they really have, and. And so you see this associated with mental health. Yeah. And so to go back and see where, you know, Solomon's making this point, if you do this, then this is the benefit. And it just makes you realize how important uh, humility is. Right. Um, and, and that's where the gospel steps in, right? And it says, hey, Lord, I'm going to need you. Uh, right? I, I can't save myself. Um, I need you to to do that work of salvation in me. Um, I need you then to do the work of sanctification in me. And and so the gospel is humility, right? It's that willingness to admit that I need something outside of myself. Right, and that's exactly right. And I read somewhere once where humility was not even considered a virtue until the time of Christ, huh. because it was so such a hallmark characteristic of his followers. It became known as one of our virtues. Wow. 
fascinating. And what a great place to end this <laughs> podcast. Like, go be humble. Right. <laughs> um, no, I appreciate this. This has been really fascinating for me. And we could have dug into any one of those topics for long periods of time. But great just to hear your story, a little bit of background, and get the overview of, of some of the things that you're working on. And um, really appreciate your time. If somebody was like, man, I want to get that commentary, or I want to hear, uh, can I read that research somewhere? Or you know, how do I find out more about these classes? What would be the best way for someone to find you or find out more about the work that you are doing? Uh, as far as the concentrations and all the things for our grace, um, uh, you can find our online grad program. It's it's out there. Um, it's a KREP approved program. And um, so it's a 60-hour master's degree in counseling. So that's a, a great way. I love our team there. We're seeing a lot of interest in that program right now. <laughs> we it's are. awesome. We are. It's great. And then uh, our undergrad program, you can see, and you can see uh, that. As far as the book is concerned, you can find that on Amazon still. And uh, I don't know. It's probably been out there three or four years. Yep, I can't yep. remember. But, uh, but it's out there as well. And the new one will be coming out sometime in the next year, hopefully, right? Yes. Um, so you can be looking for that one as well. Great. Well, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. And thanks to everybody for listening to the Grace Story podcast. Our music was written and produced by Dr. Wally Brath, Assistant Professor of Worship Arts at Grace College. And thanks to our co-producers, Rick Neer and our newest one, Chingiz. And if you can, do us a huge favor and rate or comment on this podcast wherever you retrieved it from. We would be so grateful. Until next time, live your best Grace Story today.